Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. All right. Looking good. Test, test, test. Yeah, looks good. Happy Thursday, everybody. Thanks for being here. You're listening to The Last Symptom Podcast. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and the host. I got a question for you to start off today's show. And we're, we're going to get in the meat and taters of, of our main conversation here a little bit down the road. But I thought we'd kick off with a, with a question. I'm curious if you know what the five facets of genuine love are. Well, first of all, maybe we should make sure that you know what a facet is, right? <laughs> what is a facet? If you imagine a sculpted gemstone... The gemstone is made up of these sharp-cut lines, right? Uh, each line or angle together that makes up the gemstone is considered a facet. You've seen them when you're going into jewelry stores. You've seen them in cartoons. You've seen them uh, everywhere. Each one of those sharp-cut, flat uh, lines that make up a sculpted uh, gemstone is a facet, so a gemstone as a whole is made up of many different facets, ain't it? But altogether, they make up the gemstone as a whole. So when we say that authentic love is made up of different facets, we're talking about various qualities that when combined all together form Authentic love. Together, these things make up authentic love. Now, you've heard me talk in the past about authentic love, and I've mentioned to you about how uh, authentic love is not just a feeling. Rather, it's a quality, and as a quality, it produces certain feelings. So, today, we're going to do something a little special. I'm going to tell you what the five facets are of authentic love. In other words, combined, these are the things that create authentic love. So if you got a pen and paper, here we go. I'll give you a second to, to get your phones out or whatever and to make a note of this. Number one, compassion. Yeah, compassion. Number two, Kindness. Number three, humility. Number four, 
mildness. And number five, patience. Patience. Have you noticed that many times when I've closed this show, I've told you to be compassionate, kind, patient with yourself? Have you caught on yet that um, basically what I've been trying to help you do is, is to learn to love yourself? Yeah, I've been trying to help you learn to love yourself in a real way. Now, we just uh, gave this list here, the five facets or various qualities that make up authentic love. Compassion, kindness, humility, mildness, patience. Now, is it enough to simply go down this list and force ourselves to imitate each of these different qualities? You know, here's something to think about. If, if, if we're not naturally experiencing things like compassion, kindness, humility, mildness, or patience, there has to be a reason for it. So the true work of moving from emotional unhealth to emotional health is figuring out what is obstructing us from experiencing these things naturally and then removing that obstruction, the thing, the thing that's preventing us from experiencing those things naturally. Now, notice what I just said. Your work is not pretending that there is no obstruction there or just assuming that you're stronger than any obstruction and that you can just simply overpower it. No, it, it doesn't work that way. In fact, before you started down your road to authentic recovery, that's exactly what you were trying to do. You thought that if you just uh, tried harder, that you could overpower these things. And, and it doesn't work like that. You have to understand what, you have to identify them, understand them, and dismantle them. You can't be successful for any length of time trying to overpower these things without understanding what's, what's at the root of it all. So the only way that this works is when you take the time to first recognize that you have an obstruction, identify what it is, and then make an effort to unravel it. But let's not uh, beat around the bush and let's not speak in riddles. When we talk about obstructions in our efforts toward authentic recovery from poor emotional health, what are the obstructions? You know, speaking about aspects of emotional health and emotional unhealth can be very abstract, can it? So uh, when I use a term like an obstruction in your recovery or, or, or an obstruction preventing you from experiencing things like uh, the five facets of authentic love, what are we talking about? Obviously, we're not talking about some physical obstruction. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about perceptions. That's what we're talking about. The way we view and understand a thing. So the entirety 
of emotional disorder is built on misperceptions. Yeah, the entirety of emotional disorder is built on misperceptions. See, we've taken a thing that was abstract, and now we've solidified it, right? We know exactly what these obstructions are. They are misperceptions. And what are they misperceptions about? They're misperceptions about the nature of feelings, self, and life. So, from now on, anytime you get into a conversation with somebody and they start talking about borderline personality disorder or narcissism or any other emotional disorder, as if it's something mystic, you can straighten them out right then and there. Don't let them walk around talking about these things as if they are mystic. They're not mystic. Emotional disorder is nothing mystic. Now, the professional community as a group may love making it seem mystic, but that's because some of those in that community want to feel more relevant than they are. And some of those in that community have no invested interest in you no longer viewing yourself as dependent on them. What is the simplest explanation for what an emotional disorder is? Emotional disorder is simply the natural results that occur when any person lives with an inaccurate understanding about the true nature of feelings of self and of life. That's it. That's all there is to it. Is there anything mystic about that? You literally could take that definition and build insights off of it for the next 50 years. For example, notice that I don't say that it's just an inaccurate understanding or perception about feeling self and life. I, I didn't say that. Rather, what I said was that it's an inaccurate perception about the nature, the nature of feelings, self, and life, the very nature of what these things are. So, for example, when I say feelings, I ain't just talking about your inaccurate perceptions toward the nature of your feelings. But by extension, I'm talking about feelings in general. That is, everybody's feelings, all people's feelings, your neighbor's feelings, your your children's feelings, your spouse's feelings, you, you know, the the feelings of the lady at the checkout line in the grocery store. And when I say self, I ain't just talking about your misperceptions about yourself. No. By extension, I'm referring to selves. You know, that is, the people all around you. In other words, the nature of what it means to be a person. But let's get back to obstructions and authentic love, and let's break it down in steps and reason it through, all right? 
I want you to be able to see the natural relationship between these things. If we are not naturally experiencing authentic love, what does that mean? What does it mean if we're not naturally, you know, that word is important. I'm not talking about trying to force ourselves into doing these things, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of unnaturally where we're just going through the steps, right? Anybody can check off a list of things and, and imitate that. But, but I'm not talking about imitating. I'm talking about if we're not naturally experiencing those things. So if we're not naturally experiencing authentic love, what is the only thing that it can mean? Well, it means that we're not truly experiencing the combination of all five facets that authentic love requires in order for it to truly exist. What were those five things? Compassion, kindness, humility, mildness, patience. Those are the five facets of authentic love. Interestingly, without all five combined, it cannot be said that one is experiencing authentic love. Genuine love requires all five. If we're being obstructed from naturally experiencing any of the five facets of love, what is the reason for it? The reason for it is misperception some sort of misperception or inaccurate understanding. Those are, you know, I just, those are the same thing. Some sort of misperception or inaccurate understanding about the nature of feelings, self, and life. You see, because a person has an inaccurate understanding about these things, the way or he or she approaches life is it's out of harmony with the things that they're hoping for and the expectations that they have. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I would like you to imagine that uh, you're driving around your town in a car. You can pick the car. It can be a van <laughs> or it can be a motorcycle. I don't care. The thing that, def, you know, that really uh, matches, matches your self-image, all right? You're driving that around town. But you're doing so with the understanding that the color red on traffic lights means go. And according to your understanding of things, the color green on the traffic light means stop. All right, you got it? Now, I don't know, I don't think anybody in New Zealand or uh, Bangladesh is driving around, you know, culturally, I don't think there's a difference there. I think everywhere you go, <clears throat> traffic lights, red means stop, green means go. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But you've got it in reverse. You see, that's the point. You're riding around on your uh, three-wheeler or your tricycle or uh, your, your Hummer. And the understanding that you're working with is that red means go and green means stop. 
you really believe this. Let's, let's say that you were just taught this as a child and nobody's ever corrected you. And now you're driving around your town with this understanding of things. So now, can you imagine any conflict that just might naturally arise from you driving around with this misunderstanding or this misperception about how traffic is meant to flow and operate harmoniously? Well, of course you can. And do you know what the most interesting thing is about this? You, the person creating all this disorder and mayhem for yourself, you would be looking around at all the other drivers casually driving through green lights, and you would be thinking, what? Yeah, you'd be thinking that everybody else is the problem, wouldn't you? You'd be wondering why, why everybody's working against your efforts to drive safely through your town, right? You'd be looking at everybody angrily. You'd be honking the horn. What would you be feeling? Well, I don't have to be a rocket scientist to know what you'd be feeling. You'd be feeling great anger and frustration, wouldn't you? Driving around with this misconception about traffic lights. Let me ask you, would this mean that you're feeling feelings any differently than all human beings feel things? Of course not. You know, if you take any person in the world and you put them into the same circumstances as what we've just described, you twist them up with confusion so that they're also misinterpreting everything about the nature of this experience, and guess what? That person would feel the same or similar things in the same intensities. Think about that. And then you know what? You'd go to an expert, expert, and uh, instead of correctly telling you that you're simply misinformed, that, that you're misinterpreting things through an inaccurate understanding, the expert would then endorse and solidify the utterly ridiculous lie that your feelings are functioning different than everybody else's feelings. Yeah, it's your feelings' fault, you see. And, th and then they'd charge you $250 for the privilege of letting them misdirect you and outright lie to you for 45 minutes in ways that may prevent you from ever escaping those distortions. You can understand why me now being on the other side of borderline personality disorder and looking back at my experiences with the professional community, the standard nature of that experience, why uh, I might justifiably want to call out all of that. If you are dealing with an emotional disorder like borderline personality disorder, you are simply a person in a car 
with an inaccurate understanding about the nature of traffic lights. That's it. All the feelings and frustrations and the undesirable results that you're experiencing in your life are naturally occurring. You, You still got your pen ready? Write that down. Everything you're experiencing is naturally occurring. It's the natural results that any person would experience having been taught the nature of feelings, self, and life incorrectly. Now, if we correct these misperceptions, which granted, you know, many are extremely subtle, you know, that's, that's the that is the difficulty with them. If they were not subtle, if they were loud and obvious, they would be easily corrected. If you correct these subtle misperceptions, guess what? You'll no longer be driving through dangerous intersections and creating so much disharmony and chaos around you. Furthermore, these obstructions that you've lived with until now that are preventing you from experiencing Things like authentic love, genuine empathy, they will be removed. The obstructions will be, we've already described what the obstructions are. You'll identify them, you'll correct them, and then the obstruction will be removed. All five facets of authentic love will open up and become a naturally resultant experience of your newly corrected perceptions, right? Just as the frustrations and obstructions you currently experience are naturally occurring, so will things like love and true empathy become naturally occurring things that you begin to experience. Now notice when I talk about empathy, uh, I ain't talking about the fake, unhealthily motivated Empathy, you know, it's not even real empathy, but, you know, what, what else can I call it? But I'm not talking about that fake empathy that many people with borderline personality disorder adamantly claim to experience so strongly. I'm talking about true empathy, healthy empathy. If you'd like to know more about why you, the person with borderline personality disorder, is not experiencing true empathy, even though you will swear up and down and you, you'll get into a fight with me, about it because you're just so convinced about it. You think it's all, you know, what you feel. Well, listen to my episode. I think it was in season two, uh, here on the last symptom podcast about why you're not experiencing genuine empathy and what genuine empathy is. Now I grant you, I do grant you because remember I had borderline personality disorder for 35 years. I did it too. I grant you that you do feel things very strongly that seem like empathy. So, yeah, I was in that situation for 35 years. I, I was convinced that uh, everything I was experiencing was, was empathy. But things like love and empathy are not just what we feel. You know, the things provoking those, those things, the reasons behind them, what motivates them, and the purpose they feel they fulfill in our lives— That is what matters. That is what matters. So, 
again, I would recommend anybody who's uh, real upset about what I just said about fake empathy to don't don't get in your own way. You know, don't do that. Go look up the the episode of this podcast where I talk about that. Listen to it with an open mind, with a sincere sincere approach, and you will begin to understand why what you're experiencing that you identify as you know making you an empath. It's not that. You know, one thing I tell people all the time, and I'd like you to take to heart: borderline personality disorder. Emotional disorder, emotional unhealth does not grant its sufferers any positive superpowers. It doesn't grant you anything positive at all. Not at all. So if you're walking around bragging about having this disorder or talking about how empathetic you are because of it or how artistic you are because of it, you are so full of sh- you're up in you're into it up to your nose reject all that stuff emotional disorder does not give you anything positive it only gives you negative things whatever you know things that you identify that are great about you those belong to you not to the the disorder all right you are always going to have those things uh, the, the disorder isn't granting it to you, right? And getting rid of the disorder is not going to take good things away from you. That's probably long overdue for me to say. Getting rid of the disorder is not going to take anything good away from you. It's only going to take away bad things from you. I can tell you that from personal experience. We're going to talk today about a related topic in the meat and taters section of our discussion, our uh, primary topic today, which I call the meat and taters, <laughs> is why confronting your parents is a bad idea. But before we get into all that, let me thank you again for listening to today's program. Please let me direct you over to thelastsymptom.com for you know, anything you might need related to my work. If you'd like to support my work with a donation, you can do that too. You can do that at thelastsymptom.com. Your donations are making the show that you're listening to right now available this week. So thank you very much. If you'd like to schedule a personal phone call with me, you can do that from thelastsymptom.com. If you'd like to sponsor a call for those experiencing financial difficulty, you can do that at thelastsymptom.com. Why do I make that available? Well, I make that available because for at least the six years uh, of my own recovery, I was destitute. I couldn't rub two nickels together. Everything I had went to gas and housing and f- and food. Even then, I still had to, uh, to hit up some of the food banks in there in New England. So... Uh, you know, it required a, that required some humility. I'd gone from the heights where I could have everything I wanted to then suddenly be uh, without friends, without my wife, without anybody in a part of the United States that I was completely unfamiliar with. And, uh, and here I was hitting up food banks for canned food just to survive for a month. 
that was a, a real exercise in humility. Where I am here in the central Appalachian region of the United States, we are on the threshold of entering into autumn, one of my favorite seasons of the year. Of course, it's not hard for it to be one of my favorite seasons of the year, considering that, as I've explained to y'all in the past, uh, I chose a while back that I would begin thinking positive things about all four seasons equally. And the result has been that I now love all four seasons of the year equally. That is the power of perspective. You see, there's that perspective thing at work again. Talking about seasons and uh, autumn in particular. It's always exciting here where I'm at to go from one season into another. You know, they only last about three months. Each each season only lasts about three months. Just about the time I'm getting tired of one season, here comes the next one right around the corner. And, and it brings with it all the wonderful things that are inherent to it. Uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the woods, autumn was a time of brilliantly colored forests, crunchy leaves underfoot, crisp, cool mornings, and uh, crisp, cool evenings, even better. Hayrides, which uh, is just a tractor pulling a trailer full of hay that people pile onto. And we go riding down back roads with somebody pulling us on a tractor. Bonfires were also very common. Sweater weather, we call it. With just a light sweater, you can go out for a walk on, in the evening, and it's, it's just perfect. Perfect. Well, whether or not you're in a part of the world getting ready to experience fall weather or not, I hope you're all doing well out there, that you too are thinking positive things about this time of year. Let's get into today's primary topic. Why confronting your parents is a bad idea. When I was going through my own authentic recovery from emotional disorder, specifically borderline personality disorder. And uh, as I was experiencing epiphany after epiphany related to my underlying perceptions or misperceptions, I should say, about the nature of feeling, self, and life, which is, again, remember, the root cause of all emotional disorders, my next major revelation was that my misperceptions that I had always lived with could only have come from guess who? From my emotional teachers, my parents. Now, consider for a second that a teacher cannot teach you anything (laughs) that he or she does not know. If your parents are emotionally unhealthy, well, it's impossible, impossible that they're going to teach you emotionally healthy perceptions and attitudes. So whatever attitudes your parents truly lived with, this is what you observed and learned from as a child. Now, too many people will ignorantly tell you that the origin of things like borderline personality disorder 
and narcissistic personality disorder originates from trauma. This is a lie. It's a lie that completely overlooks the most relevant aspect of the development of these sorts of emotional disorders. Borderline personality disorder is not a mental illness. I've said that for three years now. Very few people pick up on it. Borderline personality disorder is not a mental illness. You don't have a mental illness if that's what, you, if that's what you're dealing with. Borderline personality disorder is not a mental health issue. Not if it's borderline personality disorder you're dealing with. Rather, it's an emotional disorder. And again, what did we say that an emotional disorder is? Emotional disorder simply refers to the emotional frustration and confusion that results from the natural disharmony in one's approach to life, right? Borderline personality disorder is not a mental illness. Borderline personality disorder is not a mental health issue. I've been talking about this for three years, and folks who have been following me for three years still continue to refer to these issues as mental health issues and as mental illness. So I don't know how else to, to say it except for snap out of it. Stop supporting those lies. It's an emotional disorder. You remember the person blowing through red lights thinking that red means go and green means stop. It is this disharmonious approach to life that creates the emotional disorder. And where does it come from? Well, it comes from being taught inaccurate perceptions about the nature of feelings, self, and life incorrectly. Now, how were you taught this? You were taught it by observing your own parents' consistent attitudes toward these things. So why is the cause of emotional disorders not trauma? You know, you hear that thrown around everywhere. Why is it not trauma? Well, think about this. Not everybody who has an emotional disorder, uh, let's be more specific, not everybody who has borderline personality disorder was locked in a basement as a child and, and burned with cigarettes. But every single person who has borderline personality disorder was exposed to unhealthy underlying attitudes on the parts of their parents and their emotional teachers, maybe grandparents, maybe an adopted family. And by the way, it's not trauma, it's not the trauma of being chained in the basement that does the real harm. I know that's hard to understand because it's so dramatic and shocking. But rather, 
It is how this behavior reflects the true attitudes of the parents and the caregivers who do such things. How it reflects their true attitudes that they live with in regard to the nature of what? The nature of feelings, self, and life. Remember who you're learning from. Remember what I said. Children observe their parents' attitudes, and they use this to form their own concrete certainties about the nature of feelings, self, and life themselves. So, being chained in the basement clearly reflects a twisted, unhealthy attitude towards feelings, doesn't it? It reflects a twisted, unhealthy attitude towards self. After all, if feelings mattered, if children mattered, if you mattered, then your parents wouldn't be chaining you up in the basement. Right, but do you see how it's not the being chained up in the basement that that's misdirection? It's the attitudes reflected that this experience reflected in the people who did that to you that does the real harm. Because does something as dramatic as being chained in the basement have to be in your past history? For, in order for you to have received the same messages or for you to have been exposed to the same unhe- unhealthy attitudes? Not at all. Think about this. If your parents laugh when you're afraid because they think you should not be afraid, the effect on you as a child is exactly the same because the messages in the attitudes behind both things are the same. So how about when your parents tell you to stop crying? What attitudes reflect there? Hey, stop crying. What attitude is reflected in that? The unhealthy, erroneous attitude that you're that you are feeling the wrong thing. But not just that, but also the unhealthy, inaccurate concept that you can choose what you feel. And also that whatever you're feeling naturally is bothersome. Is there such a thing as human beings feeling the wrong thing? Or being able to choose what we feel? Of course not. You know, feelings are never good or bad, right or wrong. I've said it 200 kajillion times. Whatever you feel about anything is just what you feel. Feeling is something that we as human beings experience. It is not something we do. If you got your pen, jot that down. Feeling is something we experience as human beings. It's not something we do. You can see from the example how 
although there's no obvious dramatic you know, trauma going on, that old favorite lie of misdirection pushed by the inept professional community as a group, the child is still being exposed to a profoundly harmful attitude. Don't cry. The abuse is in the false education one is receiving about the nature of their feelings. A person given this education will go on to use this template to understand everything in their lives for the rest of their lives unless they do the work to identify and fix these unbelievably powerful distortions such as I did and such as you are doing now. Now, what do you uh, suppose went through my mind as I had these revelations for myself in my own authentic recovery? Well, I felt great excitement. Yes, I did. felt great excitement. One of the first things I couldn't wait to do was to meet with my parents and to share all these great epiphanies with them. For me, these insights were earth-shattering. I can't even tell you. They were enormous and earth-shattering. I knew they were going to change my life forever. I could see how my fundamental misperceptions about the nature of things like feeling, self, and life had negatively and powerfully affected my entire life. But not only that, I could see how it had negatively and powerfully affected my parents' entire lives. And I could see how they were directly responsible for these things. But I thought, you know, they've lived their entire lives like this, and this could change their lives. This could make them happy for the first time in their entire life, genuinely happy, without these obstructions that we talked about earlier. So I could see how my parents were directly responsible for everything that I was now living with. What do I mean that uh, my parents were directly responsible for all these things? Well, consider this. Children are not responsible for their own physical, mental, and emotional needs or care. Why not? Because they're not fully developed physically mentally, or emotionally as human beings. So, the inherent responsibility belongs to who? Yeah, it belongs to the parents who are indeed enjoying full development as human beings. So, it's not a matter of if the parents are able to properly live up to their inherent responsibility as parents. It's instead a matter of if they are capable. So, I have talked in depth in the past about the difference, you know, the, the defining differences between capacity, which is, uh, you know, synonymous with capability, and ability. I'm not able to play the piano tonight, but I am capable. And what that means is that at any time... If I want to learn how to play the piano, I can. 
That is a possibility that exists within me. So all adults, even your adults, your parents, as much as you'd like to get them off the hook, were and are capable of parenting healthfully, even if they're unable to, due to ignorance, due to disinterest. It's their capacities, their capabilities, that is relevant for these discussions, not their abilities or what they're able to do. I naively believe that my parents would be just as excited and amazed as I was by these new things that I was learning. But here's the interesting thing about escaping emotional disorders. Information is only as good as the receptiveness of the person receiving it. You might as well get get used to it. I deal with it every day. Information is only as good as the receptiveness of the person receiving it. Do you know what denial is? Denial is an overwhelmingly powerful phenomenon that we as people are prone to. Uh, Emotionally healthy people and emotionally unhealthy people alike, we're all prone to denial. Well, what is it? Denial is any time our feelings rebel against a reality. So denial is so powerful that it can literally blind you to what is right there in front of your nose, and it can reinterpret reality so that you can look a thing right in the face but see it as something entirely different than what it is. And that's what happened when I went to my parents. Both of my parents went straight into denial. The things I told them on some level they knew were true, but it made them feel terrible about themselves. So, Denial kicked in, and they refused to even consider that they had any role whatsoever in the very real, painful, destructive issues that, um, that I and my siblings were now dealing with. My parents got bitter. They got mean. They taunted me. They taunted me. They taunted these ideas as being ridiculous. And when I backed them into a corner, they got heated and defensive and dismissive. It was the exact opposite reception than the one I was expecting. When I was talking to a wise psychologist about this, a guy that I really admired, I remember asking him, what if, what if they see these things? And he said, uh, they probably won't be able to live with themselves. Well, he did not explain to me what denial was. And he did not explain to me what acceptance was. I had to learn that on my own. 
but his words echoed in my head years later when I encountered this. They would not be able to live with themselves. Denial. When our feelings are so opposed to a thing that our feelings outright rebel against the reality. It's very sad. As painful as it is for them, acceptance, the, the, you know, the healthy opposite of denial, is the only healthy way for them to approach the thing. And what does that involve? That involves surrender, doesn't it? At this early stage in my authentic recovery, this experience was indescribably discouraging. And I'm going to be frank with you and share that this one experience with my parents, their failure to care about any of these things or to accept responsibility whatsoever set me back at least a year and maybe longer than that. You know, the, uh, for anybody who's been following me for any length of time, you know that the full length, the full process of my authentic recovery from borderline personality disorder lasted approximately seven years unne- unnecessarily. I say unnecessarily because for the first two years, I got a bunch of bullshit uh, information from the professional community. Um, also, I was bouncing around. I was chasing work. It was during the Great Recession here in the United States, and uh, I was broke. There, there was a lot of stress, you know, there was a lot of external stress. But so today, based on this experience, when I'm counseling other people on whether or not to confront parents, here's my advice. My advice, my, my very strong advice is to not do it. And here's the reason why. Your recovery does not depend, it does not depend on anybody or anything else accepting and understanding the things you're learning or the changes in perception that you're making, including your parents. There's no... They don't need to understand. They don't need to accept. None of your family members need to see the same things you're seeing, no matter how excited about them you are. Their understanding or acceptance of these things is completely irrelevant to the nature of what it is you really are trying to do and trying to accomplish. Now, you and I and... All of us, we hear the term closure often, yeah? Closure. And when you hear this term, it is often used in the context of somebody else having to do a thing or some external thing having to happen, right, before a person can, can enjoy closure. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's bullshit, too. That's a lie. That is, a, that is a total lie. So let's say that somebody has murdered an entire family and now the family shows up to the, the execution and they're there to watch the execution and the news is outside, the media. They're interviewing them. Hey, 
So what do you think about this? And the, the distraught grandmother, she says, well, I feel like this can finally bring me closure. She may really believe that, but, but she doesn't know what she's saying because they never follow up with these people. But I guarantee if they did, that every one of them will say, it did not bring me closure. Why not? Because closure, true closure, cannot come from some external thing. It can't be dependent. You know, our contentment cannot be dependent on somebody else doing a thing or on some external thing happening before we experience it. Otherwise, there would not be any happy people in the world. Do you understand that? There would not be anybody in the world enjoying underlying contentment if underlying contentment depended on external things happening first or being exactly the way we want them to be. So, true closure, whenever you hear that, that expression, I need closure. True closure is simply acceptance. What is acceptance? It's the, it's the healthy opposite of denial. So what is denial? Denial is looking at a thing and not seeing what is really there. Why? Because our feelings are rebelling against some reality. So what is, what is acceptance if, if it's the healthy opposite of that? Acceptance is being able to look at a thing and see it exactly for what it is, no matter how we feel about it. That's another thing, that if you, you jot that down and you think about it, you could build upon that for the next 50 years. So true closure is simply acceptance. And acceptance is the healthy opposite of denial. It's the, the ability to look at a thing, and no matter how we feel about it, to say, that is what it is. Uh, I'll give you an example. A lot of people I talk to, and it happened to me too, um, you know, I used to have a, a great uh, aversion to thinking of my father as an abusive, as, as a child abuser. But the reality is, when you look at the facts, I was a child, he abused me. <laughs> he didn't physically abuse me all, all too often, but, you know, that's regardless of the point. He, he emotionally abused me throughout my entire life. And what lasts longer, a black eye or the belief that you're, you're worthless? Clearly, the belief that you're worthless lasts, it follows you forever. It affects your life in dramatic ways much more than a black eye. So, here's the reality. My father... As much as I admire him for all of his good qualities, abused me when I was a child. He emotionally abused me. What does that make him? My father's a child abuser. Now, do you are you feeling that that uh, resistance to describing your parents the same way? That's denial. It's any time our feelings say, "Ooh, ooh." Oh, it makes me feel so dirty. I, 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 there's so many things about that I don't like. So I'm going to pretend like I'm going to pretend that that what I'm talking about does not fit into that description whatsoever. 
even though it does, that's denial. It blinds you to a reality that is right in front of your nose. Very powerful. It's a phenomenon that is so powerful. As human beings, our feelings control us in ways that, you know, if we've never taken emotion seriously before or, you know, even given it much thought, uh, these sorts of things might be uh, overwhelmingly relevant for us to study. So, true closure. Oh, I need closure. That's simply acceptance. And uh, acceptance is the healthy opposite of denial. It's the ability to look at a thing and see it exactly for what it is. Now, note that acceptance does not mean agreeing with a thing, nor does it mean liking a thing. It's also not, and this is uh, worth noting down, acceptance is not an intellectual achievement. It's an emotional achievement. So, for example, mourning the death of somebody is an example of denial. It's when one's emotions are rebelling against the reality that a loved one has died. What happens when a person emerges from mourning? So they've been in mourning for a while, and uh, they finally they come out of mourning, you know, the mourning the loss of some loved, loved one. What has happened? Well, what has happened is acceptance. One's feelings cease rebelling against the reality of that loss. Since confronting your parents is most likely to end in crushing disappointment, and their understanding is completely irrelevant to your authentic recovery from emotional disorder anyway, honestly, what practical reason is there to do it at all? What practical reason is there to confront your parents if closure does not depend on anything external? It's simply you looking at a thing and saying, all right, this is the reality. This is what it is. I accept that. And now I'm going to move on. If that's what closure is, and if confronting your parents is most likely to end in crushing disappointment, and their understanding of what you're dealing with and the, and the problems they've caused you is completely irrelevant to your authentic recovery, what's the practical reason for doing it? There is none. My strong recommendation is to put your urges for involving your parents aside and to focus on yourself and on your recovery. The more you learn the more insights you'll gain along the way and the more you'll see all these things in context. There's this fly flying around. The one day that I decide to record this on video, uh, I'm going to name him. Uh, Let's see. What's a good name for this fly? I think his entire life expectancy is about three days. So let's not put too much time or thought into it, but uh, let's call him uh, Horace. Horace. Yeah. I like it. Horace the fly. Horace, where you at, buddy? He'll come around. You'll see him. Horace. (laughs) So, the more you learn, 
And uh, the more insights you gain along the way, the <laughs> there's worse. The more you will see all of these things in context. I want I want Horace to die so bad. <laughs> I even have a fly or a, a spider right outside my door, and he's got this huge web. I even duck under it every time I go out my door, uh, and I just let him be there because I want him, I want him to catch Horace and his entire family, and I just want him to eliminate him. Um, sorry about that. Here we go. The more you learn, the more insights you gain along the way, the more you'll see all these things in context. And this means that every day you'll be gaining a better understanding about the greatest ways to view and approach these situations. So, please listen to me. Save yourself some pain. At the very least, put off conversations like this with family members until you're far, far down the path of your authentic recovery. By the time you've advanced to a certain point, you'll have probably identified for yourself things that you once thought was really pressing or necessary to say right now to them that were never necessary or constructive at all. By the way, as long as we're speaking about denial and by extension acceptance, do you know what the difference is between acceptance and understanding? What's the difference between understanding a thing and accepting a thing? Using the the illustration again of somebody dying that we uh, deeply love, you might understand, you know, up here, you might understand that a loved one is gone. But this does not mean that you accept that he or she is gone. So mourning is when your feelings are having trouble accepting the reality of somebody you love no longer being alive, and hence the mourning period. Acceptance is when, emer- is when one emerges from this uh, mourning and the person's feelings stop fighting against or rebelling against that reality. The person uh, accepts that this reality just, it just is what it is. And because the individual's feelings are no longer rebelling against this reality, they're able to move forward. Uh, And they're, they're able to move forward with these new circumstances as the norm, rather than to remain stuck in time in denial of it. Now, notice, acceptance does not necessarily mean liking a thing or agreeing with a thing. Not at all. It's merely our feelings no longer fighting against the reality of that thing. Understanding is a mental achievement. Acceptance is an emotional achievement. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope you're having a wonderful week. This is Brian Barnett signing off. I'll see you next week. As always... Thanks for listening.